Welcome to Deep Dive MH370, Episode 15, Seabed Search. It's Andy Tarnoff, the publisher of On Milwaukee, and I am joined by Jeff Wise, aviation journalist, MH370 expert, and apparently you're celebrating Boxing Day today? I am celebrating Boxing Day. A friend invited invited me and my wife over, so it's not actually something we normally do, but you know, I guess it's a kind of an English holiday. So yeah, it's a special holiday Canadian. edition. Yeah, okay. it's our it's our holiday edition. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, last week and the week before we talked about Russia's involvement or potentially Russia's involvement. Right. We talked about the route and I felt extremely knowledgeable in that level of international affairs because that's my right. background. Today, since we're talking about the seabed search, I feel like this is going to be a little bit more of the Jeff Wise show and that's okay because I have my notes here. <laughs> I, I'm gonna I'm gonna lead you, and you're gonna you're gonna answer okay. all of my questions if you don't yeah. mind. Well, hey, listen, like everything else, it's like it's the the material might be more or less familiar, but you know, it's 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 not it's really not rocket science. It's like basically, but it is an interesting question. Like, how do you search an area of the ocean that's a thousand miles from the nearest port? It's three miles deep. It's in this famously stormy patch of ocean, and you're looking for a plane you know, amidst thousands and thousands of square mile of ocean, it's a big task. And how do you do it? And it, nothing like this had ever been done before. So Was it something uh, that you knew, you knew anything about? I mean, th- like, that's a very specialized, uh, d- d- like, like academic thing. Like, there's no way yeah. before you started studying MH370 that you knew anything about seabed searches, right? You'd or think. am I underestimating you? You'd think. But, and indeed, this is something that is a very arcane uh, corner of human endeavor, but remember, Air France 447 had happened just a few years before, and it right. was something I had looked very intensively at. And there's so many echoes between MH370 and Air France 447 that I, I often think of them as, as kind of related, and maybe, maybe one was inspired by the other. In some in some sense, so I had spent some time learning about how they searched the seabed for that wreck. At that time, that was the most ambitious seabed search that had ever taken place. Um, MA370 then took it up another notch, and it was just on another scale again. So it was a really incredible undertaking. Um, they sort of had to invent the technology to do it as they went, um, but we'll talk more about that as we go. Okay. Uh, so I want to do something just a little bit different on this one, which I guess okay. I could have warned you about in advance, ah. but I didn't. Uh, I was thinking back to my many journalism classes in college mm-hmm. and and reporting and what I do for a living now, and that's always to begin with the lead. And I feel like in some ways that we, instead of doing the inverted pyramid, which for people who don't under work in this industry, where you where you start with the lead and you get more granular, the most, I think you in some ways, the most important thing. Yeah, I think in some ways what we've been doing is we've been telling a story in a narrative sort of way and then right. telling people what th- the point of the episode was. So I, I wanted this time to mm-hmm. just begin with this thesis that mm-hmm. as we talk about the seabed search, we are going to analyze whether the approach they used was a sound one. Well, it's something we've been talking about over the course of this season of shows, right? We talked about how they 
um, came to the conclusion that the plane had ent- had entered a steep dive towards the ocean. We talked about why the seventh arc was where it was. We talked about how far up and down the the seventh arc they thought they would need to look. And so all of these things contributed to this box, this imaginary box that they plotted on the ocean floor. And they concluded, okay, there's like a 97% probability that has to be within this area. Now, whether that math was correct, whether their assumptions were correct, is well was very much uh front of mind as they set out they sent these three ships out to search the seabed and they were very confident the australians made these uh very confident announcements and pronouncements saying that we were very confident they at one point they said we're, we're gonna we've got a bottle of moe yeah we've got the, the quote fridge. we've got the quote on that one all right so yeah. this is a great place to start so we're looking okay. at the southern spring of 2014. Again, keeping right. in mind that the southern hemisphere has the opposite seasons of us in the northern hemisphere. Right. And the search authorities, they're like they're ready to go. They're ready to undertake their search of the seabed. They they hire a Dutch marine survey company called Fugro. Right. They have their three ships, the Fugro Discovery, the Fugro Equator, and the Fugro Supporter. They are going to use this probability density function that we've described. Right. 600 miles long, three miles deep. That's big. It's a, it's a pretty big area, but they're confident that they've done their calculations right. They know the kind of error margins that they're working with, and so they have a pretty rigorous model of where they're going to find this thing. They just have to go there, and what they're going to do is they're going to drag... Um, this it's called um, side scan sonar, and it's going to send out these acoustic pings, kind of like ultrasound, and it's going to make a, kind of like a photograph of the seabed, and they're going to almost like a scanner, you know, as you put your document in your scanner, like that bar of light goes over it. It's almost okay. like that bar of light going along a, a flatbed scanner, and they're going to wind up with strips of image of the seabed. This area, this twenty-three thousand square mile area is considered to be one of the most treacherous, inhospitable sections of of any ocean. They call it the Roaring Forties, which sounds like, I'm assuming they're referring to 40-foot waves, but really these waves were 50 feet, even more than 50 feet? Okay, what are the Roaring Forties? Is it the the latitude? What what does it mean? The latitude. Yeah, it's like 40, 40 degrees to 50 degrees. Okay. And that's what it's famous for the Roaring Forties. The area that they were looking was actually a little north of that. It was more like, oh, wait, am I right? No, it was around, it was around then, actually. Um, 40-ish. Okay, all right. 40-ish, let's okay. call it. But okay. it's rough. I mean, it's like close to Antarctica. It's like open ocean. Um, and it can be really, really crazy. Um, we're going to have video uh, for the people who are watching on YouTube, we'll have video of the big waves that these ships had to go through and just for months on end. Because what they would do is just, we, we said it was 600 miles long. They would basically just steam up and down 600 miles back and forth, kind of like mowing the lawn, um, dragging this um, scanner and and make, making these long, long images of the seabed. And they would turn around and come back and do the next patch right next to it with a certain amount of overlaps. So there wouldn't be any gaps. We talked to Peter Waring back in the very first episode of this podcast. He was one of the guys uh, from Australia who participated in this. And I liked how you kind of talked about like, these people went out to sea for a long time. And it was very, very, very difficult and very, very expensive. They 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 started with just the first 
Fugro Discovery, I believe. But then they added in January, they added the Fugro Equator and Fugro Supporter. So now they had three of these ships. They thought they were going to find it. They did say. The, the quote really it was from an Australian crash investigator, Peter Foley. He told a reporter that the 1988 Moet is chilling nicely. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Very confident. That must be a very fancy version of Moet. It must be a great vintage because... That sounds old. <laughs> and it, presumably everyone is supposed to know that this is a great kind of champagne. Yeah. But um, I'll take his word I for was it. like, I don't know. Um, All right. But yeah, a lot of confidence. Um, the scientists had told them this is where you're going to find it. Um, and as the months went by, obviously, so they started right at the seventh arc. They had this expectation that the plane had been in this very steep dive. It couldn't have gotten very far. Um, their experience with Air France 447, once again, um, that plane wound up within like five miles of its last known um, point. So again, it, it, when things go wrong with airplanes, they tend to, not always, but they mostly go wrong quickly. And so planes don't get really, once things go, come a cropper, airplanes tend to come down pretty close to where things started to go wrong. Um, so as okay. you go further and further away, your odds go down. So in April of 2015, the search was coming up empty. The governments of Australia, Malaysia, and China, they doubled the search and search area again. Right. And to your point about how, yeah, the odds go down the farther you get away from the heat map. Right. It turned out that that ATSB head of uh, Martin Dolan, he, I think he actually made an incorrect statement. He said it's as likely on the last day of the search as it is on the first day of the search that the aircraft would be there. We've covered nearly three quarters of the search area. And since we haven't found the aircraft in those areas, that increases the likelihood that it's in the areas we haven't looked at yet. That sounds right. like faulty logic to me. It is. You're correct. It is faulty logic. Um, that's not how it works at all. Um, basically, you can imagine, we've talked about the probability distribution as being like kind of a fried egg. It's like, you know, like the yolk is in the middle. Um, that's where the density is highest. And then it, as you get outwards, there's kind of lower and lower and lower probability zones. Um, and it kind of fades outward, but there's no hard edge. It's like kind of just the further away you get, the less likely it is. Um, and so you basically draw an arbitrary box and whatever size box the bigger the box, the higher the probability is. So it might be, you started with 95 and you make it bigger and now it includes 97. You make it bigger, now it's 98 and a half, but you're never gonna get to 100. So this idea that they had drawn a box that incorporated 100% of the probability density is just, it shows that he did not know what he was talking about. Yeah, and now we get to November of 2016, there's just like a sliver left unscanned. So ATSB convenes its meeting to, with all of its experts to, to grapple with all the different ways that they could have gone wrong. Right. They define a new area, 10,000 square miles, straight well, the seventh arc. Or they define a new here. area, but in the context of not searching for it, but of just saying, this is why we didn't find it. Because what they're getting ready to do is they've spent their money, they've searched their area, they probably went back to Malaysia, China, and Australians, to the governments and said, can we spend more money to search more? And the government said, no, you, <laughs> you already told us you were sure you were going to find it and you didn't. So you, unless you tell us a good reason why you think it's somewhere else, then you can't spend our money anymore. Um, and, they, and so they had a meeting. Now, 
where the plane, why isn't the plane in the box? This is the burning, this remains the kind of the burning question of MH370. Okay. How come it isn't in the box where we said it was going to be? Did it, maybe it wasn't in a steep dive right into the ocean. Um, maybe he, the pilot had a change of heart and decided to put it in a glide and managed to get it more than the 30 miles from the seventh arc that they searched. Um, maybe somehow the plane was doing some kind of a curving maneuver or had lurked um, north in the northern part of the of, of, of the ocean for a while before it flew south. And then that would mean it would wind up further to the north along the seventh arc. There was there was all kinds of possibilities that seemed very low probability before the search took place. But now that we have excluded from this fried egg shaped probability distribution, and they basically published this chart that showed kind of like their initial probability distribution, but then with all of the search area, like kind of chomped out of it, cut out of it. And so what's left is these slivers at the edges and each point on that kind of remnant probability distribution could be explained by some kind of combination of unlikely events. And if you and are an audio said, listener, okay. you may want to be listening, or you may now now want to become a video <laughs> viewer <laughs> because we have we have all all these pictures. Right. If you insist on being a an audio listener, at least visit deep dive deepdivemh370.com because on the show notes we will be displaying these maps and explaining what they are. But please go on, Jeff. Okay, thank you. Um, so. They they're getting basically ready to pack it in, and they're saying we we looked, um, we 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 did our calculations very carefully. Uh, we can't really explain why we didn't find it, but we're pretty sure it must have done some kind of fancy maneuver, and that's why it wound up further north along the seventh arc than than we initially thought was very likely. Um, but that's that's where the plane has to be because we don't really have any other good ideas. So we're going to stop. Thank you for spending all your money. Um, have a nice day. Um, see ya. And they, they, they stopped and they, and they, but they published this kind of final report saying uh, we didn't find it, but this is where it is. Let me play the role of the average cons news consumer and ask you a couple of questions about this. Great. Uh, first of all, do we fully understand exactly who was paying for this, which countries, what proportions they were paying for, how much of this was taxpayer money, how much of this was Malaysia airline money. I mean, do we, is that stuff public information? Yeah, it's public information. I don't have it at my fingertips right now. I am not a taxpayer in any of these countries, so right. I don't really care personally. Um, I do know that... <laughs> Australians. I, I actually did it. I did an article in an Australian newspaper not very long ago, and I kind of proposed that Australia take up the the you know the crusade once more. And the comments were mostly like, "We did our part. We spent a lot of money. Why doesn't somebody else take this responsibility?" I think there's a lot of frustration, frankly. And, and I'm sure there was because this was a ton of money mm -hmm. and very few answers. My other question for you was one that I thought of when they were doing this seabed search is could the plane have been hiding in a underwater crevasse or in the shadow of a cliff or in some sort of deep sea thing that they couldn't find it in? Yeah. And in fact, they published a chart that also showed areas where, you know, the train, the underwater train was more mountainous and might have more crevasse or cliffs or areas because basically what they did is they pulled this, um, Toad uh, side scan sonar array 
and there were they found places where it was too rough for them to really get a good image, and they went back with these um, underwater autonomous vehicles, little kind of basically autonomous robot subs that they could go and they could take re- well, they could take higher resolution sonar scans and they could also take actual pictures and so they have like pictures of anchors and things on the seabed and like shipwrecks that's clearly it's a shipwreck but even after doing all that there were still some areas where they're like you know maybe yeah maybe it did fall into a crack or a crevice or like the you can imagine like the top of a volcano with like a little caldera in there that maybe yeah you know they they calculate it's like kind of like a one percent chance that it wound up in something like that so the authorities themselves stated the opinion that we don't think that this is what happened. Like, we're pretty sure it's not in this area. And we don't think it's in that area either. I mean, we spent the last two episodes talking about the northern route, but we're we're doing this chronologically, and we're talking about what happened. Right. And, and again, but they again. They didn't find the phone, or they didn't find the plane. Really important, again, to hit this uh, note. We're not looking for the right answer. We're looking for what are the possibilities what, and, and, and what are the relative uh, probabilities of the different things that could have happened. So maybe the pilot took a lot of turns um, that just coincidentally left the same pattern as a straight flight. Maybe it ran into a, um, maybe it fell into a crevasse. Or maybe there's, maybe the data had been tampered with in a way that is we know or strongly suspect to be possible. So we're now, once the seabed search takes place and, and all of the highest probability endpoints have been ruled out, or at least ruled quite unlikely, we're left with just very low, pro- think, we're left with options that at the beginning would have been viewed as very implausible, right. but now are all that remains. Which is not where you want to be after spending this kind of money and this kind of time. But that's all they had left because that's they were convinced that this is where the plane went, more or less. This is this is my mindset. This is not their mindset. Their mindset is there's no way we were wrong. The the data couldn't. They it, it's their thinking is unable to encompass the possibility that the data could have been tampered with. So they in their mind they're 100 percent certain, 100 percent certain that it is on the seabed somewhere. Um, so it is, it's, and they don't think it's really in a crevasse. They think if it went north, it must have been in this other area. They do think maybe we totally misinterpreted the BFO data. And so it did, maybe it was, maybe we completely misunderstood the BFO data and it went much further from the seventh arc than we thought was possible. Which we will get to that too. And this is a, this is a nice short and sweet episode. I think we're, 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 there's only so much we're going to say in this one. Because uh, we have the next couple episodes planned out. Am I missing anything? Is there anything that you wanted to cover in this one that we haven't already talked about? We no, but I think this this is kind of a short and sweet one, but it is a very important one in in the unveiling of this mystery. Remember, I had so when once they started to search near the seventh arc, I understood that because of the BFO data, it should have been really close to the seventh arc. Yeah. So they spent you know two years search scanning the seabed, but they searched the highest, the best, highest probability parts, like within the first month or two. So I came, I had basically gone public and I said, I, I think you might not find it on the Southern seabed and here's why. And I basically went on international TV and said, I have this theory about why the plane might not be on the Southern seabed. It was risky. Um, I felt like I was kind of gambling my reputation as a serious person. I was widely attacked for it. 
But I thought it was worth the risk because I thought once they don't find the airplane, people will have to come back and say, wait, there was this one guy who predicted that they might not find it because no one else at the time, at the time, everybody else was also equally confident that it was going to be found on the Southern seabed, including the independent group that I had been working with for all this time. Yeah. I mean, it sucks. I'm sorry. So they were <laughs> I'm sorry so you got mad. ridiculed like that because I was ridiculed, but also kicked out of the independent group. And so some of the people in the independent group are like, Jeff Wise is a bad person. Um, and he is wrong and he's like ridiculous. And even in the Netflix documentary, you have Mike Exner saying like, I don't know why Jeff Wise talks about this crazy stuff. It's irresponsible. And, you know, is, is I think impugning me, which is, which doesn't feel good, but you know, I don't know what his reasons are for taking that attitude. We're trying to understand a very, very strange case. And yeah. at the time, people didn't realize how strange of a case it was. They thought, okay, we understand this case perfectly. We know where this data is coming from, and we understand what the data means. And therefore, everything is fine. Everything is fine. And I tried to say everything might not actually be fine. And I was proved right. I mean, and I've and I've we've talked about this before. I made a prediction that was that was a high risk prediction, and I was correct. And so I, I, I'm here to tell the world this case is crazier than you think it is. You have to really accept it's weird and you need to try to come up with an explanation for that weirdness. It's, it's very weird. So we'll pause. We'll stop here. Um, episode 16 is next week. I believe that we're going to start talking about looking for debris. Or, right. Yeah, yeah and, yeah. and finding it. But that's and finding it. Yeah. I mean, that one's going to go on for a while. So buckle in. So, um, yeah, I mean, just to, just a little context to, to preview what we're going to be talking about next. Once they were continued to be unsuccessful finding it on the seabed, the question is, well, where is all the where did all the wreckage go? I mean, this plane impacted the ocean, must have made millions of pieces of debris that should be including seat cushions that are going to be floating all over the place. Where are we going to find these things? Where should we look? And people start looking for pieces of debris. Um, we'll, we'll get more into that next time. Okay. So time for the like and subscribe part, which I've always feel so silly saying, but it is an important thing to do because as our numbers go up, that helps yeah. the algorithm, right. that helps the conversation. The comments have been fantastic. Even yeah. the ones that aren't very supportive, but many of them have been super supportive and, and people are, yeah. I say this every week, but they're bringing up great topics and yeah. we're addressing them. So it's everywhere. It's on if you're listening to it, it's on Apple Podcasts, it's on Amazon Music, it's on Spotify. If you're watching it, it's on YouTube, it's on Facebook. Obviously, we're doing all the social media stuff, yeah. including Twitter and Instagram. We're doing it on our own website, deepdivemh370.com. There's an opportunity to subscribe to our newsletter and also to be a, a commenter who we we see we get the I get those notifications and, and, and people, it's really fun to, to have that conversation. I love to have those conversations. Um, one of the conversations that people have brought up since our last episode is that a guy in Australia said that nine years ago he found a wing um, yeah. off the south coast of Australia. And a lot of people wanted to know my opinion about that. Really briefly, my opinion is that it seems odd to me that somebody would wait nine years to go to the authorities. Um, this guy, people wrote back and said, well, well, he actually said he went to the authorities at the time, but they ignored him. Well, I said, well, okay, so why is he going to the media now? Um, right. And, I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> 
So I find it. Oh, the other thing is that it was three thousand miles from the seventh arc, and he said he found it six months after MH370 disappeared. So this wing would have had to make a real beeline for this point on the coast. And it's worth noting, and this I'm getting ahead of next week a little bit, but there's no debris has ever been found in Australia from this wreck. So it doesn't. It, the story doesn't really make any sense on a number of different levels. But I really do appreciate people bringing it up. And it, again, once again, shows that this is a living story. People are constantly still talking about it and new finds, new UFO videos keep emerging. No, that's so what that's I, I mean. That's why we're here. We're here to, we're, we appreciate you alerting us to this stuff and we will put in our two cents. I mean, I'm, I'm looking, it's Tuesday, December 26th, and this thing is going to run on Thursday in two days. Right. So this right. is a current podcast. Right. And it's an evolving story. So stick right. along with us. It keeps getting more interesting yeah. more insane yeah. and we're, we're taking this somewhere i promise <laughs> yeah a long <laughs> we're taking it a long way we are we are on a, this is a this is the world's longest crazy roller coaster i'm buckle in because i'm buckle ready up. thank you jeff uh, thanks, Andy. once again and we will see everybody next week thanks guys bye-bye bye